Let's read Matthew chapter 4, 17 through 25, and then we'll talk about it. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it points us to your Son and to your grace and mercy. We pray as we encounter Jesus in this text, would you open up our eyes to see him and our hearts to love him? And would you reveal to, your, to us uh, your, your great compassion on us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, first, having an encounter with Jesus, the king, uh, looks like hearing his summons, his call. Jesus is about to kick off his movement, his ministry, and in order to do that, he decides to call a group of people to follow him, to be with him, to learn from him, to watch him, to observe him in all that he does. He's gathering together a little community around himself. We see this taking place in verses 18 and 19. He's walking along the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, Simon, uh, who we know as Peter, and Andrew. They're fishermen, and they're working on their boats, and he says to them, follow me. Follow me. Come be with me. And so what do they do? Verse 20 shows us immediately they left their nets to follow him. This happens again a few minutes later with John and James. Jesus says, follow me. I want you to be with me. And then again, verse 22 says, immediately they left their boats, they left their father, and they followed Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, we hear a summons from him. He says to us, follow me. And the response that he expects, an immediate and radical change toward him. 
an immediate and radical change toward him. This is what Jesus means in verse 17 when he comes on the scene and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent is to have an immediate and radical change towards Jesus. A sudden and thorough change of one's life. That everything about your life now centers around him. That every sphere of your life has him at the center. Everything is directed towards him and through him. Just look at the lives of these fishermen. They dropped their nets. They got out of the boat. That means that they understood that their work in life now revolves around Jesus. That doesn't mean that we are called to leave our jobs and go and work for the church. No, what, what a radical and immediate change looks like is to now view your work every day as for his glory, for him, not for yourself, to work for his glory, not for any, any praise of man or boss or supervisor, but to work for his glory. They left their nets and their boat. That means that they understood that their money, their livelihood, the way that they built their life now was needing to be radically changed. To think of our money not ultimately as a means to serve ourselves, but ultimately as a gift from God himself that we are to use for his kingdom, to bless others, to be a good steward of it and invest it into the lives of others. That's what it means to have a radical and immediate change to follow Jesus. John and James, they leave their father to follow Jesus. They have a radical change about how they understood their family. Jesus isn't saying that we're to abandon our family. No, actually, he tells us to honor our father and mother. But he does say that we are now part of a new family, too the family of God, where our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers are those who have faith in Christ. So yes, we are to obey and honor our blood family, but we have been welcomed into a new family of faith. Do you see your church as your new family? This extends into how we raise our children, to raise them up into the Lord as covenant children to whom belong all the promises of God, are we teaching them to our children? Are we demonstrating the love and kindness, the grace and forgiveness of God to them? Are we apologizing and asking them for forgiveness when we mess up? Are we displaying that for them? Are we worshiping with them? Are we encouraging them to worship with us? Are we praying with them and inviting them to pray too? Are we reading scripture with them? Jesus says, follow me. Have an immediate radical change, radical that's deep down into the root of your being, a change that takes place at the very core of everything that you do. When we encounter Jesus, we are summoned to bring him from the edges of our lives to the very center, the core. John Stott, 
who uh, was a, a British theologian and Anglican pastor. He talks about his encounter with Jesus. He, he says he grew up as a Lutheran. Uh, I grew up as a Lutheran. He grew up as a Lutheran with Lutheran piety, meaning he knew all the stories. He knew the prayers. His parents prayed them with him. But he says as a, as a young man, maybe 16 or 17, he was alpha at boarding school. And um, he was invited one evening to go to a, a meeting on a Sunday night, what we might call a, a youth group meeting. And there was a visiting pastor who is preaching that evening on the text of uh, the trial of Jesus. When Jesus stands before the Roman governor Pilate, and Pilate asks the crowd, what then shall I do with Jesus the king? And, and John says he remembers sitting there hearing that and thinking, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? Nothing. I mean, Jesus has been in my life this whole time, and I've never done anything with him. I've never had to do anything. What do you mean, what then shall I do with this Jesus? And so it piqued his interest. Afterward, he got, uh, he got the attention of the pastor. They went on a walk, and he asked him questions, and the pastor was able to share with John the message of the gospel and invite him that evening to encounter Jesus. John Stott recalls that later that night, as his roommates had fallen asleep at the boarding school, he crawled out of bed, got down on his knees, and prayed for perhaps the first time with sincerity. And he says, this is my prayer. He said, Jesus, I have made a mess of my life, but I thank you for dying for me to save me from my sins. I open myself up to you, and I want to follow you. That was it. He went to bed, woke up the next day. He didn't feel like much changed. But over the next days and weeks, he recalls feeling different. He says, in the weeks to come, I realized that there had been a monumental change within me, a radical change he says, before this happened, Jesus was always on the outside, on the circumference of my life, out on the edge. And then, all of a sudden, he was on the inside. He was at the core. He was uh, is in the middle. Everything else revolved around him. He said, I have been living now for 60 years, trying every day to put that into practice. Jesus issues a summons Follow me. Make me the center of your life. Bring me into the middle. Make everything else in your life revolve around me. And he can do that because Jesus is the king. He possesses all power and authority over every square inch of this universe. He can call us to that. But we don't like to hear it. The, the default way, the default operating system of our lives is that we think that our lives belong to us. We think that we choose what we're going to wear in the morning, that we choose what music we listen to on the road, that we choose how we are to spend our money, that we choose the kind of relationships that we get into or out of, that we choose when to show up and when to stay home, that we choose what to say and what to do and what to think. We think that our world revolves around us. 
There is such an ingrained notion in our default setting that freedom is the ultimate good. Without freedom, we're nothing. And we have defined freedom in this way. We have defined freedom to be the freedom to choose whatever we want to do, whatever we want to be, wherever we want to live, whatever we want to live for. And anyone or anything that puts a limit on that freedom, we rebel against. Any institution that says that I can't do something, any person in my life that says you shouldn't be doing that, any message that we hear that says this is not good for you, we reject it outright and we rebel against it because we are convinced that freedom to choose our own life is the ultimate good. But Jesus says you are not your own. You do not control your life. You do not own your life. You do not have ultimate power over your life. You belong to me. I have bought you with a price of my precious blood. Now follow me. Submit to me. Give up what you're holding on to. Surrender everything to me. Choose to give up your freedom and your dreams to become a servant in my kingdom. And you will finally find the life that you're looking for. Come and experience great joy. Come and experience abundant life. This is the summons of the king. Have you encountered him like that? Have you encountered Jesus like that, where he says, let go, follow me? He's inviting us to follow him. Not only does he invite us to follow him, but when we encounter Jesus he invites us to join him on the mission. He invites us to join him on the mission. For those who have encountered Jesus, who have received him as their savior, who, who rest in him alone for their salvation, who look to the cross as the place in which their sins have been forgiven, where they're given a new identity as a child of God, those who have had the righteousness of Christ cover them, so that they stand before the Father, loved and delighted in those he invites to join him in the mission. We see that in verse 19. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's saying, in other words, come and join me. Come be a part of what I am doing through you. Come alongside me and join me in my mission of gathering people to be part of what I am doing, gathering them around myself. Later in the story that Matthew tells us, Jesus is going to call more disciples to himself, and we read that Jesus called them not only to be with him, but that he could send them out. Jesus doesn't just say, follow me. He says, follow me and then go. Come to be with me, but then go. This is exactly what he says at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission. He brings his disciples to himself and says, now go and make disciples of every nation. Come be with me, come follow me, but then go. Join the mission. 
Every single Christian has been enlisted into this mission. Every one of us in this room have a part to play in this mission. Jesus is summoning us to follow him, but also inviting us to join him. He wants to start a movement. Several years ago, there was a TED Talk. Uh, I encourage you to go home, look up TED Talk, How a Movement Begins. It's five minutes long. It's wonderful. And in this video, uh, the, the speaker shows another video and explains what's happening in the video. I'm going to do my best to explain what's happening in the video. In the video, it's a video of a... Um, of like a music show out on like a rolling grassy hill, like an outdoor music show. And so there's music in the background, there's people laying out listening. And out in the distance, the video zooms in on this lone singular guy who's standing up while everyone else is sitting down. He's dressed kind of funny and he's dancing wildly to the music. I mean, embarrassingly so. That's why the camera's on him. But after a few moments of awkwardness, of this guy dancing by himself, someone else runs into the frame and starts copying every kind of movement that the guy is doing. He doesn't care what other people think. He's just following this one guy and moving his hands and dancing around just like the first guy was. And after a few more minutes of awkwardness, a third guy joins the scene and starts copying too and then two by two, and then three by three, and then by several by several, more and more people start joining in the dance, following that guy. And then all of a sudden, everyone else realizes, I am missing out because I'm not part of the movement that is happening here. And then on the side of this hill, at the end of the video, I mean, hundreds of people are dancing together. And it's incredible. Now, how did that movement begin? That movement didn't begin because one strange-looking dancing guy was dancing on the hill. The movement began because someone looked at that guy and said, I want to do what he's doing. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. I want to go be a part of what he's doing. And it was his courage and boldness to stand up and be made fun of, really, to join the first guy dancing. That's how the movement began. Jesus is about to embark on this mission, this movement of the kingdom of God, and he says, I want you to come and join me. I want you to come and join me in this movement. Who does Jesus ask to join the movement? Peter and Andrew, James and John, four local fishermen. It doesn't really sound like you're uh, a-list team to start a global movement, does it? Doesn't sound like who I'd pick to change the world, but that's who Jesus chooses. These are the people that Jesus chooses to join him in his mission. Local fishermen. They weren't students of the Bible. They didn't uh, know their theology. They were just simple fishermen. Why does Jesus choose them? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that God, the foolishness of God, is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Which means this, God chooses to use what the world has declared as foolish and weak and unimpressive in order to proclaim the strength and the wisdom and the beauty of the gospel. These fishermen were not impressive. They were not attractive. They were not elites. They were not educated. But God chooses to use the weak things of this world to showcase his glory. This is the gospel message. The God of the universe steps down into this world in the form of a crying baby who is born in the backwoods town of Bethlehem, who grows up in in Nazareth, and we know nothing good comes from Nazareth. He attracts people to himself because of his message of love, but who does he get to come? Nobody's. And then as his movement picks up steam at the climax of his ministry, the pinnacle of his mission, he doesn't storm into the gates with an army. He doesn't talk down the brilliance of the religious leaders with a well-framed argument. No, he dies on the cross. He dies on what is basically a symbol of the death penalty. He was defeated, mocked, stripped naked and humiliated, and yet it was in the death of the Son of God that he actually claims eternal life for his people. It was in the humiliation of Jesus that he is actually exalted. It is in the apparent loss of Jesus that victory is put on display. The gospel is a message that says God uses the foolish things of the world to proclaim his wisdom, the weak things of this world to demonstrate his strength. And so he chooses us. He chooses you. He chooses me. Unlearned, unskilled, nobodies in the grand scheme of things. To faithfully follow him and to boldly and courageously join him in his mission. How is he using you? Where is he using you? Into whose life has Jesus brought you into? Which of your neighbors has he placed in your life for you to love? Which one of your friends or coworkers' ear has he given to you for you to speak words of hope into? Jesus chooses to use us, unimpressive people like us, to do wonderful things. All right, I got some insider baseball talk to Story Church folks. If you're new, I'm glad you're visiting. But if you've been around for a while, in the two and a half years that we've been really operating as a church plant, we've done a lot of outward-facing activities and events and outreaches. We've spent a lot of money on those things, a lot of time and energy. I've asked a lot from you. Um, And in those two and a half years, we've probably met well over 300 neighbors. And, And not just like, hey, I'm Jeremy. We've gotten contact info. I've followed up with them. We've gotten meals together. I've sent emails. I've called them. I've texted them. Well over 300. 
And in those two and a half years and over 300 connections and over thousands of dollars spent, we have maybe had four people come on a Sunday morning because of that. that that's not an indictment or condemnation to any one of us. It is merely to say this. I don't think that Jesus is choosing to use the impressiveness of us or the attraction of us or the wisdom of us to build his church. But I do think from this passage, we can take heart and maybe we can redirect our next several years into thinking God is going to use our weakness and our unattraction and our lack of impressiveness to build his kingdom. So I think beginning next year, that's going to be our focus. Trusting the Lord to build his church, to gather people around him, to build his movement with the weak and foolishness of this world. Friends, that's us. That's, that's not a judgment about that church or this church that do those things. Look, we've done them. I just think in this passage we see the truth that the Lord brings people to himself not with power and, and, and attraction, but with humility and weakness, saying, like, I'm nothing, but this is my God who uses nothing to do something incredible. Friends, he's choosing to use us for his mission. Have you encountered Jesus like that? Have you joined his mission? Finally, an encounter with the king uh, results in experiencing his kingdom. So Jesus, he's, he's called people to follow him. He's calling people to join him in the mission. And then we see this last snapshot of what that mission looks like. It says that he goes from city to city, town to town, teaching them, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then doing what? Healing. Verse 23 says that he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That is what happens when we encounter Jesus. We begin to experience the healing that his kingdom brings. Verse 24 goes on to say that this healing includes physical and material healing. Look at the list of the people that come to him. Uh, the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, those who have pains, those who are oppressed by demons, those who are having seizures, those who are paralytics, whoever had any need, they were brought to Jesus and he healed them. There were the medically sick who needed healing, the physically hurting that needed healing, the relationally hurting who had been cut off from people they loved who needed healing, the socially hurting, those who had been cast out from their community, they needed healing. Those whose livelihoods had been upended by sudden circumstances outside of their control, they needed healing. Those who were spiritually hurting, those who were oppressed by demons, they needed healing. Anyone who is afflicted with anything, any kind of weakness, any kind of lack, any kind of deficiency, they were brought to Jesus, brought into the kingdom where they experienced healing. Restoration, reconciliation, wholeness, flourishing. This is what the gospel does to people. It begins being reconciled to God above 
through Jesus, our vertical relationship with him is restored and we experience spiritual healing. But then the gospel transforms us and it spreads out and it brings healing across all the other relationships we have with our family and our friends, our coworkers, even with ourselves. So our marriages begin to see reconciliation. We see addictions are destroyed, abuses are healed, brokenness is restored. In this age, in part, we will see healing. But in the age to come, we will see the complete restoration of all things. The kingdom of God brings healing and the kingdom is at hand. This is what happens when we encounter Jesus. We bring him our afflictions and he gives us healing. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which, by the way, I have about 36 copies of, and so that is your Christmas present from me this year. He invites us to think about it this way. Imagine a medical missionary, a, a, a compassionate doctor who has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to the primitive tribe who are afflicted with a contagious disease. But as he is seeking to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward and receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Does he feel repulsed by this contagious disease? Does he feel worried that he might catch it himself? Does he, is he standoffish? No. This doctor feels joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come out to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason why he came. This is true of Christ. Dane says that uh, it brings Jesus joy as we come into his kingdom with our hurts and our pains to receive restoration. Friends, Jesus calls us to come to him and follow him. He calls to us to come and join him in the mission, and he calls to us to come to him and bring with us our hurts, our pains, our weaknesses, so that the king can heal us. This is only possible because Jesus, unlike all the other kings of the world, he does not take the throne and then wield his power with vengeance or abusive authority. Jesus isn't a narcissist who manipulates his subjects for his own purposes. He does not lord his power over us and coerce us through shame and guilt and with threats of fear to get us to do what he wants us to do. No. Jesus is unlike the kings of this world. Jesus is the kind of king who chooses instead to lay down his life for his subjects. He chooses to become low and humble in order to lift us up and exalt us. He chooses to suffer so that we might be healed. And our assurance of forgiveness this morning in our worship service reminds us of this truth. It is by his wounds that we are healed. Friends, Jesus is the king whose selfless love brought him to the cross to suffer in our place, 
to experience the wrath of God for our sins in our stead so that we could come to him with whatever is afflicting us, our sin, yes, and also our pain, our hurts, our wounds. He says, bring those to me. And when we do, he takes them off of our shoulders. He brings us peace. This is what the king offers us in his kingdom. Have you encountered that king? Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus, but have you encountered him yet? Have you heard his call to follow him? Have you joined him in the mission? Have you brought to him whatever is afflicting you? Friends, we can go to him. Let's go to him now in prayer.